Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This will be the last time we will be in 1 Corinthians, at least in terms of a verse-by-verse study. We will be looking at verses 15 through 24 in a few minutes. Before we do, I must give you a few thoughts. When I reflect upon all of the instructions, all of the exhortations given to this pretty messed up church, I would imagine that when they first heard this letter read to them, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, the lash fell on everyone's back, right? Every issue he confronted in some ways had a name attached to it. I mean, everybody knew who was up to what. We just have to look at this practically. Like every congregation, everyone knew which ones were the, the jealous, divisive, arrogant, immoral people. Everyone knew the litigious loons that were out to sue everybody. Everyone knew which ones were the legalists trying to cram some law down somebody's throat. Everyone knew which ones were the, the, the selfish bigots that wouldn't, wouldn't share their food and got drunk at the love feast. They knew who they were. Everyone knew who the weirdos were that concocted some of these bizarre ideas about marriage and divorce and remarriage that we, that we covered. They knew which ones were the strutting peacocks that liked to flaunt their contrived spiritual gifts with all of their nonsensical gibberish they call tongues. And they knew which ones were the heretical fruitcakes that were trying to deny the resurrection. So imagine they hear this letter read to them, and I I would imagine that some may have just gotten up and walked out. It was just too embarrassing. But I'm sure everyone sat real still with their eyes wide open because what they were hearing was a message from God. I'm also sure there were many tears of genuine repentance as they humbled themselves under the Spirit's loving rebuke. We all know what that feels like, don't we? Well, last week we examined the final summary statement of the epistle, five closing commands that were crucial for them in order to obey what the Spirit would have them obey, and five essentials to godliness. Remember verse 13, he said, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And in summary, what he's saying is be watchful for spiritual adversaries, be firm in Bible doctrine, be courageously mature in character and conduct, be strengthened by the power of Christ, and be loving in all things. And what we have next, as he gives his closing remarks, is what being loving in all things really looks like in a practical way. So let me read this to you, beginning in verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Wherever there is 
true Christian love in a church, you will witness five things. And this is how I've divided this section for you. You're going to witness, number one, evangelizing love. Secondly, devoted love. Thirdly, submissive love. Fourthly, refreshing love. And finally, accommodating love. These truths are so practical. They're, they're so encouraging. And I'm so thankful for God's tender mercy in revealing these things to us. We don't want to just kind of look over these because it's kind of the end of a letter and it's just filler because that's not at all the case. So let's look at this closely. He says, first of all, in verse 15, now I urge you, brethren, and then he says, you know, the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Here, I would submit to you that we see an example of, number one, evangelizing love. Now, this golden nugget of history harkens back to the first converts in Achaia, which was the, the southern province of Greece, where Athens, where Corinth were located. Let, let me give you a little refresh, refresher course in this part of New Testament history. Paul first went to Athens, as you may recall, and imagine what it would be like for you to just walk into Athens, all right? It'd be kind of like walking into, I don't know, Las Vegas, only nobody knows Christ. Of course, probably nobody knows Christ in Las Vegas. I'm not sure, but not many. In Acts 17, 16, we read that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So what does he do? Well, he first goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. And then he converses with the Epicureans and, and the Stoic philosophers who scoffed at him, remember, and called him an idle babbler. And then they took him before the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And that venerable council then charged him with all kinds of, of religious and and um, heresy, so to speak. By the way, they were in charge of all things philosophical, all the educational matters in Athens. They sneered at him. And in verse 24 of Acts 17, it says, but some men joined him. <gasps> mm, some men joined him and believed. Among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman called Damaris, and others with them. And from there, he goes on to Corinth, and where he meets a certain Jew named Aquila, and his wife Priscilla, who is also called Prisca. They were tent makers. Tent makers were also leather makers, like Paul. They would have been, by the way, a couple that were forced to flee from Rome because Emperor Claudius Caesar commanded all of the Jews to get out. You can read about that in the first part of Acts 18. And they were probably believers when Paul met them. It's interesting how the Spirit of God causes those things to come about. And in Acts 18, we see that Paul goes to the synagogue and he does this every Saturday and he's trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And then Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia to join him in the gospel witness. And in verse 5 of Acts 18, we, we read, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. Ah, but it was not all in vain because a man by the name of Titius Justus, who lived next door to the synagogue, came to faith in Christ. And also Crispus who was the leader of the synagogue. And not just Crispus, but also, the text says, his whole household. So all of his family and his servants. And then we read that many other Corinthians came to faith in Christ, including 
Stephanus and his household, all of his family, all of his servants. We know that Paul stays there about a year and a half and, and others come to faith in Christ. Now, I just wanted to rehearse this for you to remind you of the kind of love and the kind of sacrifice that is required to really be a missionary, to be an evangelist, being willing to be ridiculed, be persecuted. But look what God does. I mean, think about it, folks. He, he is in our efforts. He uses us to bring the gospel to his elect that they might be saved. It's an amazing reality. In fact, in Acts 18, beginning in verse 9, we read, And the Lord said to Paul, In, a night, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. And I'm sure he was afraid. I would be. Wouldn't you? Do not be afraid any longer. Here's why. He says, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. An amazing statement. We never know who among the elect, God's elect, might be listening to our stammering lips as we present the gospel. But what a thrill it is to, to see God snatch someone out of that scoffing crowd and save them by their grace, by his grace. Or snatch them out of an ungodly family like some of you and save that person by his grace. Or snatch them out of some apostate church and begin to grow them in Christ. What an amazing thing. But what I want you to see here, dear friends, is Paul's sacrificial love. Paul had such a love for Christ, and he had such a love for the lost, that he was willing to do anything that it took to bring the gospel to them. In fact, at Romans 9 and verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And of course, it was his love for Christ that empowered him to love others. We know that. We see it, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, the love of Christ controls us. goes on to say, so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So as a result of God's love that animated the love of Paul and Silas and Timothy that also came to help him in the evangelism, we see that Stephanus and his household were among the first fruits of the Corinthian harvest. That first fruits concept we see throughout the New Testament, it speaks of a, a, of a crop that has come up, but it's pointing to more of a greater harvest to come, right? Don't we love it in springtime? when we begin to see those first tomatoes on the vine, and we can pick them, but we know that there's a lot more coming. And that's what we see often in families, right? Somebody comes to faith in Christ, so often that's the first fruits of a greater harvest that will come. Or somebody comes to faith in Christ in some region where the gospel maybe has never even been proclaimed. And over time, you begin to see more in the harvest. So I would ask you, dear friends, do you have an evangelizing love? Who are the first fruits of your ministry? Consider the evangelizing love of the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, we read that because of their, their, quote, work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, goes on to say the word of the Lord uh, sounded forth from them, 
not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place their faith toward God had gone forth. Folks, this is the kind of testimony I want us to have at Calvary Bible Church. That the gospel goes forth from this place. I think of some of the missionaries that we support. Uh, Shannon and Danielle Hurley, as some of you remember. Uh, Sufficiency of Scripture Ministries in Uganda. If you're not familiar with them, some of you I know are new, you need to get online and see their website. I hope to take a group of us there again. I've taught over there. But on the website, Shannon says this, Ever since I went to Uganda in the summer of 1995, I have had a deep, inescapable love for the people of Uganda. And folks, that's what it takes. A deep, inescapable love. Oh, child of God, do you have an evangelizing love? I must confess, whenever I contemplate the horrors of hell, I I cannot bear the thought of anyone that I know or love, or anyone for that matter, ever experiencing such a fate. The, the, The thought of seeing the contorted face of a loved one in those eternal flames in solitary confinement is so hideous that I I can't allow my mind to dwell upon that. But what I can do is pray for the lost and witness to the lost and preach the gospel. Oh, dear Christian, will you not weep with me for the lost? Some of them in your family, some of them in your community, some of them in this church. There's a phrase that you will hear if you were to listen to Nancy and me pray. We say it all the time. Oh, God, save our babies. Think of those who are going to worship today at the Super Bowl. Going to worship while they're there or they're going to watch it on television. I I refuse to watch it knowing it will line its commercial breaks with drag queens and LGBTQ propaganda. I read that they will not allow a pro-life ad that features an abortion survivor. I mean, today millions are going to cheer their favorite team with fanatical fervor, and they will give absolutely no thought to the destiny of their own soul. They will worship athletes and ignore God. Blinded by sin and Satan, they will adorn themselves with the jersey of their favorite athlete, and they will give no thought of their need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And to even hear such a thing would be utter folly to them. And beloved, were it not for God's grace, we would laugh with them. Oh, dear Christian, pray for evangelizing love. Let your heart break over the destiny of the lost. They're all around us. Sow the seeds of the gospel and watch them germinate and grow into a Stephanus in his household and so many others. So wherever there's true Christian love, we will witness not only evangelizing love, but secondly, devoted love. Notice again in verse 15, speaking of the household of Stephanus, at the end there he says, they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. The term devoted in the original language means to to literally set themselves aside for something. They, They committed themselves to meet the needs of the saints. They devoted their time, their energy, their resources, their talents to meet the needs of others. You see, folks, this is what love does. It doesn't wait to be told. It doesn't wait to be cajoled. It takes the initiative on its own. And the text goes on to say they devoted themselves for ministry. Diakonia in the original language, we get our word deacon from that, which means service or assistance. But the term was especially used to describe the kind of service to help assist in and a person's sustenance. You see, the physical, material needs 
in the first century were great. And many times it was a matter of life and death, which is foreign to us. But I'm so thankful for so many of you who take this seriously. You devote yourselves to the ministry of the saints here at Calvary Bible Church. I've had so many of you at times call me up or pull me inside and say, Pastor, I'm concerned about so-and-so, this couple or this person. I, I've, I've, I've learned this, and I'm, I'm wondering what we can do to help. That's the attitude. That is devoted love. We see this in the attitude of the saints um, in, in Macedonia and other places. Let, let me give you one example in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 4. Uh, speaking of the of the poor Gentile church in Macedonia, remember they wanted help in participating with the offering for the Judean saints in Jerusalem to try to bridge that cultural gap between Jews and Gentiles because they love Christ. And there in that text in Second Corinthians eight four, we read that they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, the idea of of devoting oneself for ministry, uh, for service, for assistance, suggests a heart of heart of humility. It suggests a a, a self sacrificing kind of love. It doesn't suggest that a person has to seek an office or a title to do this. In fact. This speaks of a, of a servant who loves so much they're willing to serve in obscurity. That is devoted love. And I'm always deeply moved when I hear about some of you who have come along, someone in the church family, uh, you've come alongside them to assist them with their, their physical needs, their spiritual needs, material needs in some special way. There's a great example of someone assisting someone in their physical needs, right? Well, obviously, you're not going to do this unless you're connected in the body, unless you're a part of the church, unless you're a part of the fellowship. So you know what's going on. And I, I hope that that continues to be the case for, for each of you. There's no such thing as a Christianity that allows us to live in isolation. We're to be a part of the church. So you want to ask the question, am I devoted for ministry to the saints? By the way, this kind of love is really a test of genuine saving faith. Do you realize that? 1 John 3, verse 14 and verse 17 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He goes on to say, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is why we have a benevolence offering the first Sunday of every month. We had one today. Hopefully you gave towards it. By the way, you need to make this a priority in your budget that you give something towards benevolence over and above what you give, you know, to sustain the ministries of the church. I I think of my son Joseph's company, Coors Civic. They have 18,500 employees, and and all of those employees are asked if they would like to voluntarily give something out of their paycheck towards a benevolence fund. And you can give a dollar, you can give a hundred dollars. Some of them give a lot of money, some just give a few dollars. But you can imagine with 18,500 employees and they get paid twice a month, there's thousands of dollars that go into this benevolence fund. And the reason they do this is to help their people in times of need. When there's some great medical tragedy, there's a tornado, there's a flood or whatever. Folks, this is how we need to be here at Calvary Bible Church. I mean, if every one of you were to give, I don't know, $5, $10 or whatever on our benevolence Sundays, I mean, we would be able to address even more needs than we do currently. Now, the term ministry, the akonia, once again, is used in Acts 11.29 and 2 Corinthians 8.4 to describe financial assistance. 
But the ministry, this idea of ministry extends beyond that to include all forms of, of caring for one another. For example, in Acts 6-2, the first deacons were appointed to serve. Diakoneo, they were appointed to serve tables which included, in that context, the, the fair distribution of benevolence, not only financially for the different ones that were there, but also actual food. And why did they do this? Well, verse 4 of Acts 6 says, So the apostles could, quote, devote themselves continually to prayer and the ministry, there's the term, diakonia, the ministry of the word. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 6, we read that there are also diversities of gifts and there are differences of, here's the word again, ministries. Goes on to say diversities of activities. And so the Lord provides many different areas of ministry opportunities where your spiritual gifts can be employed in the body of Christ. Each one of us are to function within the body, as cells, as organs, so that the body can function in a way that honors its head, who is the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, why? For the profit of all. So our spiritual gifts are to put the glory of Christ on display in the church and in the community, in the world. And you want to ask yourself, is this the priority of my life? Sometimes we all need to hear the exhortation that Paul gave to Archippus in Colossians 4.17. By the way, Archippus was probably the son of Philemon. Here's what he said. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, we don't know what all that entailed, but I'm sure Archippus did, all right? There was a little prod there. It's like, come on, son, get with the program here. You're slacking off. Sometimes we all need to hear that, don't we? It's easy to begin to slack off, to start living for ourselves, to serve ourselves, to just serve our family and no one else, or to let other people do all the serving, let other people do all the giving, let other people do all of the sacrificing and the suffering. I'll just show up every now and then. And then I'll criticize those who are trying to serve. By the way, you see, that's just the opposite of devoted love. I guess you could say it's devoted love, but for yourself. And that's the great danger. Paul had to remind Timothy of the same thing. 2 Timothy 4, 5, but you, Timothy... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Then he says, fulfill your, there's the word again, ministry. So, beloved, what is your ministry in life, in the church, here at Calvary? What is your ministry? What are you a part of? Are you fulfilling it? If not, there is a deficiency in your love. To say it quite simply, those who serve little love little. And service doesn't mean just serving in the church, even though that's important, but to serve wherever you have, a, have, have influence, in, in, in your own sphere of influence, at work, or just inviting people into your home, using social media. There are so many things that you can do. So a loving church is going to produce, first, evangelizing love, secondly, devoted love. Thirdly, as we look at this text, we see submissive love. Emerging from it. Notice again, verse 15. Let me just get you, give you the flow once more. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first, first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Then he says this, that you also, in other words, I'm urging you, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Now, mutual submission is a hallmark of authentic Christianity. We are all to submit to one another in love. Every spirit-filled Christian is to humbly, to be humbly submissive to other Christians. There's no caste system in Christianity. There's no hierarchy. There's no social order. No one is superior to anyone else. First Peter 5, end of verse 5, all of you, he says, clothe yourself with humility 
toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in Ephesians 5, verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we know that God has put in place certain principles of authority and submission. We know, for example, in Hebrews 13, 17, that, that, that the saints are to submit to the elders. They have watch care over your souls. We know in, in um, Ephesians 5, 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. You go on to read there and in other passages that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and they are to be in submission to the Lord. By the way, th- let, let me digress here for a moment. This is important. In light of all of the Beth Moore brouhaha and the MacArthur thing where he said go home and all the stuff that gets so blown out of proportion, male-female role relationships, especially as they relate to authority and submission, are to reflect the relationship that exists within the triune Godhead. Now, I've spoken on this before. I'm not going to get into it in great detail But please understand that although men and women are created equal in their essential dignity, they are different. God has ordained biblically for men to have the responsibility to lead and to provide and to protect. And God has ordained women to have a complementary and supportive role to affirm and to submit to man's leadership. In in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul states the divine principle of subordination and authority that was misunderstood and abused. There he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Head, by the way, speaks of, of, of authority. In Colossians 2.10, Christ is the head over all rule and authority. We see this idea there. So we see the same principle of subordination and, and authority in Ephesians 1.20 and following. They're referring to the exaltation of Christ. It says that God the Father put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So while every believer is to be submissive to other believers in Christian love, putting their needs above their own. This does not support this errant position of egalitarianism that's being forced upon us today by the so-called evangelical feminists, women preachers, women pastors, women leaders in the church. Whenever you see that biblically, that is a sign of spiritual defection. And it's abundantly clear that the principle of subordination and authority has nothing to do with inferiority, but everything to do with the reflection of the Trinitarian relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Moreover, this is not a matter of of essence, of, of fundamental nature, but of divinely ordained functional role relationships. Obviously, there is no superiority and inferiority within the triune Godhead, right? Of course not. There's no distinction in essence between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are consubstantial, meaning they are of the same essence. But there is a distinction in the functional roles that they play in redemption. Christ's functional role, submission to the Father, does not imply inferiority in any way. And, of course, that was Paul's point. And God's created design is for men and for women to function differently in marriage, in family, in society, and in the church. Why? Once again, to reflect the relationship that exists within the triune Godhead. And this is the kind of functional submission that is manifested in Christ's relationship to his church, and with his heavenly father with respect to the work of redemption. God's plan also establishes order. Without this, there is no order. If everyone is in charge, no one's in charge. Even in nature, anything with two heads is a freak. So again, wives submit to their husbands, husbands submit to Christ. Ephesians 6, 1 and following children are submit to their parents. 
Uh, Romans 13, 1, believers are to submit to the government that God's placed over them. And uh, 1 Peter 5, 5, younger men are submit to older men, and on it goes. You see, folks, this is submissive love. And back to verse 16, be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Jesus described this, didn't he? In Matthew 20, in verse 26, he said, whoever wishes to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My, there's the supreme example, is it not? Now, practically speaking, as you sit here in this worship center and you look around and you see other believers, you need to be asking yourself, how can I manifest evangelizing love? How can I manifest serving love? And how can I manifest submissive love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I be in humble subjection to them? Especially those, as Paul says, who help in the work and labors. In other words, those who work hard at serving Christ by serving me and my family. By the way, think of all the petty conflicts in marriage and in family and in a church that would go away if we really took this seriously. Well, this is what Paul is describing. This is what love produces in Christ-honoring churches. Well, fourthly, not only evangelizing love, devoted love, submissive love, but we also see illustration of what I like to call refreshing love. Notice he says in verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Rejoice literally means to be cheerfully encouraged. We all know that feeling when something happens and we're just, wow, isn't this great? This is wonderful. You see, these, pro- these brothers had come to visit Paul. And probably they were the ones that carried this letter back to Corinth. And, and so they were able to encourage Paul. He needed encouragement. He was discouraged, as anybody would be, dealing with all that he dealt with. So, so they encouraged him in the church's absence. That's why he says here, you've supplied what was lacking on your part. And then he goes on to say, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. The term refreshed literally means in the original language to cause to rest and to rest from activities. That's the idea. And he says, therefore, acknowledge some, acknowledge such men. The term acknowledge, epignosco, means to, to, uh, to what? Show approval for them. Show approval for something that's worthy of approval, worthy of respect, worthy of imitation. And it's sad that they had to be told to do this. But when you think about it, the church was plagued with being selfish and divisive and jealous and and bickering. And so uh, the idea never goes through your mind when you're caught up in all of that to show respect for and acknowledge for uh, those kinds of people. So he reminds them to do this. Well, it's obvious that these three guys were, were precious friends of Paul. And through their refreshing love and their, their caring companionship, they were, they, were help, they were able to help him recover from just the weariness of his labors. I, I think it's such a precious thing to think about this, to help him carry his burden of ministry and, and the burden of the persecution he was, he was enduring and no telling what his body looked like and felt like after all of the stonings and everything that he'd experienced and, and lashings and just the work of, of leather making, of tent making. Isn't it interesting how God so often uses other people in our life as a tangible expression of his love towards us? He brings them into our life. I mean, Paul described this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. He says, God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Wow, praise God for Titus. Who knows what all was going on there, but it was thrilling for Paul. And when Paul was struggling with discouragement, 
Uh, he asked Timothy to make every effort to come to me soon and to bring along Mark, for he is useful to me for service. Praise God for saints that are actively engaged in this kind of love. And by the way, friends, never underestimate even the smallest act of encouragement. Just to arm around the shoulder and say, look, I know you're going through a lot. I want you to know we're praying for you and we love you. You know, can, can we get together next week and maybe share a cup of coffee? Never underestimate the power of a card. I get them from you from time to time. And Nancy and I are always kind of blown away. Said, wow, did that ever come at the perfect time? The Spirit knows that. Or when we come into your home or you're coming to ours, you know how, how this works. You want to ask yourself, do I manifest refreshing love? You know, I think about Jesus when he said, come Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, part of being a Christian, part of being like Christ is to help out in what Jesus described. And he uses us to do that. So th- this is so precious to me. I mean, here you got, you got three dear brothers who came along and lifted his spirit. I- I'm looking forward to meeting them someday. Won't that be great? In so doing, they, they, they lift everyone's spirit. That, that's how it works, right? It's just contagious. And, and because of this, the, the Corinthian church, Paul is saying, you, you need to show due recognition of these kind of people. You, you need to honor and respect those who manifest refreshing love. And, you know, often this is what happens, even automatically, because we all know that everybody wants to be around this kind of person, Right? I praise God for the Stephanuses and the Fortunatuses and the Achaicuses. I don't know if I said that right, but you get the idea. I praise God for those people in my life. And many of them are right here in this worship center. And what a contrast to the VDPs. Remember the VDPs? One of my dear friends, a pastor, I'll never forget when he first used that phrase. He said, oh, Dave, pray for me. I'm overwhelmed by the VDPs. I said, what's VDPs? I was expecting some Greek exegetical something that I wasn't aware of. He said, uh, very draining people. Very draining people. You know, the, the sour, sullen, moody, whiny, critical. I know from my, my cowboy horse days, I mean, whenever you're around a string of horses, you always want most of them to be gildings rather than mares because mares can be moody. And you never know. I've been around them where you got to watch certain mares. Their ears go back and they're always moving around, getting ready to kick you, and you got to watch for them. And, and I've had them do that a few times. And nobody wants to be around that kind of horse. Guess what? Nobody wants to be around those kind of people. They're masters of manipulation. You know the feeling. You get around them, and, and rather than them being encouraging, they, they, they're manipulative. They, they have a way of, of somehow pulling, in, pulling you into their vortex of misery. You know, they, they want you to pick up on those nonverbal cues of how upset they are. And you know that if you engage them, all of a sudden they're going to pull out their record of wrongs and they're going to go over it with you. And all of a sudden you're going to drown in the sewage of their bitterness. They just drain your battery. Folks, don't be a VDP, okay? Don't be a VDP. We're always on duty around those kind of people. And, and you know, when the phone rings and you see their name, it's like, oh, oof. Right? We all can identify with that. We still love those people. But boy, you want the Stephanuses and the Fortunatuses, don't you? Praise God for saints that manifest refreshing love. Praise God for a church filled with godly people like this church that manifest that, that are willing to do God's work God's way. I've been in churches where it's not that way. You know, it's like attending a toothache convention. I mean, you look around and everybody's kind of sour and sullen. It's like, whoa, we're not having much fun here, are we? What a happy group. 
You may recall how Titus reported to Paul the, the genuine repentance that occurred in, in Corinth, and it was just thrilling to Paul's heart. Here's what he said, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians seven thirteen. For this reason, we have been comforted. Boy, I know that feeling to get some good news that, that's just comforting. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Boy, what a joy to be around folks that just emanate joy, refreshing love. Can people say that about you? I hope so. So a loving church is going to produce folks who will manifest evangelizing love, devoted love, submissive love, refreshing love, and finally accommodating love. Notice he says, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Let me pause here. I remember, as some of you do, when the whole church used to meet in our living room over on Jack Teasley Road. Get about 25, 30 people in there, and then it kept getting bigger, and God provided other space. By the way, I'm not advocating for for the home church movement. I mean, there's numeral, numerous biblical and practical problems associated with that whole movement. But I am saying that the intimacy of of of, of small group settings of believers is so powerful. It's a precious thing. And it's interesting if we... If we look back, for example, in Romans 16 and verse 5, we see that Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, um, had a church in their home there in Rome. And now they, they, they have the same thing in, in Corinth. And they, they opened up their home to, uh, for the saints to meet in. And by the way, a well-to-do, moderately well-to-do um, household could fit 30 to 40 people in it for a church service, but the weather is typically so good, many times they would meet outside and there could have been a lot more people. But the larger point here is simply this, loving hospitality like Aquila and Prisca showed to the saints is powerful. It's accommodating love. And with no motels, it was Christians, or it was crucial for Christians in those days when, you, when they traveled to find other accommodations with other believers. Very important. And it's truly a joy, isn't it, to get to know one another? When we go to, we go to your homes, you come to ours. We, we hope that, in, especially when spring comes, we're going to be able to have, have more of you in little groups, you know, over to our house to eat hamburgers and all those types of things. What a joy that is. Well, I trust that you also are serious about accommodating love. Well, then Paul closes his letter, and he says, All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. That was a cultural expression of, of not just affection, but respect and honor and even reconciliation. Uh, we, we don't do that here in our culture. Uh, guys, don't kiss me. I get real uncomfortable with that. In fact, in, in Africa, the guys, uh, if, if they're really close to you, they like to hold your hand. And there's been times where I'm walking down the street holding hands with, looks like two NBA foot, or, uh, basketball players, you know. And I told my friend Tom Branson, don't you dare take a picture of this, because in our culture, this doesn't look right. But So it's a, it was a cultural thing. But we, we do the same thing by putting an arm around, shaking hand, whatever. And then he says, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Uh, he had an amanuensis or a scribe. Remember, uh, his name was uh, Sosthenes, as I recall. And, but, but Sosthenes didn't write this. Paul signed the little postscript in his own hand. And then he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Love here is phileo love. It's, it, it speaks of, of, the, of the type of... Of, of tender affection that one would have toward the Lord. And certainly if they don't have that, if someone does not have a tender affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, he is accursed. Second John nine eleven. anyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, I'm sorry, second John nine through verse 11, 
It says anyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Bottom line, don't show hospitality to heretics. Then he says, Maranatha, um, Aramaic for, O Lord, come. And he closes by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Folks, may I challenge you to find people who manifest these characteristics and imitate them, get to know them, spend time around them, read about them, read their biographies, read their sermons, their books. Be imitators of me, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, just as I also am of Christ. Hebrews 13.7, you don't have this on the board here, but it says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. So folks, let me close by asking you, is your faith worthy of imitation? If so... It will manifest evangelizing love, devoted love, submissive love, refreshing love, and accommodating love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these very practical truths. May they bear much fruit within our hearts that others may see the glory of Christ growing on the vine of our life. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.